My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, MC Ashley, Christian Ashley. I answer the many things, but most of all, I'd like to be able to say, once again, how many times can I say it? But I mean it every time. Thank you for continuing to listen. It means the world to me that you are still here with us, that you haven't given up on me. And thanks again to Joshua Knoll for all his editing that he is doing with this series to help make it sound a lot better than if I just continued doing what I do with all, <laughs> with my lack of knowledge. So today, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be going into the book of Luke. We'll be starting in chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for, excuse me, what they provide for the laborer deserve his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town, they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town, they do not receive you. Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. There is a lot we have to bring up in these verses here. It's definitely one of those people can do an entire sermon series on. But for us, as we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we'll focus on the main beats. And we see right at the very beginning, these are not the 12. These are 72 other disciples that Jesus has sent out to send his message to people because even as God in the flesh, he is still a man and man can only be in so many places at once. If Jesus wanted that power to do so, he could have, but he didn't. He wanted these people to also be trained. Like we talked last time about the disciples being trained and instructed. He did the same for them so that they could go out and make more disciples. This right here is that we see at this moment in time to make this burden easier on him and on the disciples as well, Jesus teaches more so that they can go to more cities. They can do more things together. Not all of us will lead as many people at once, but to the people that God has entrusted us with, no matter how small that small group looks, if it's just you and someone else, if it's just you and someone else talking about what's been going on in your life and you're giving accountability to one another, we have been entrusted with each other. We must be vigilant and lead by example so that they can go and do the same. It doesn't matter where you are in your journey with Jesus. There is going to be a time when we are called to make disciples. Let's be ready and let's watch out for them while they're under our care so that when they're 
equipped and prepared by what we have to say, by how we help them interpret the scriptures, they can then do that as has been happening since this moment in time. Notice also in this moment how Jesus commands them all to go in units of two. This serves three purposes. The first is that it's always safer to travel in numbers, especially since these roads would be full of bandits. Uh, You might have a couple errant zealots along the way. You might even have some Roman soldiers who would see one person as easy pickings and they would steal from them because they could do whatever they wanted. The point of that matter is it is so much easier for us to be protected if we go together. And if there's one thing I really like that the Mormon church does, and like I said, this is like one thing out of the many that they do that I like, it's that they force their members at around like 18-ish to go out for two years with someone else around the same time to preach the gospel to others. And I'm fairly certain they get that from verses like this and whatever else Joseph Smith decides to uh, plagiarize. It is very terrible fan fiction. Uh, read the Book of Mormon. It's a, it's a wild ride. But what I am so spiritually jealous of is that desire to bring others to Christ. Now, obviously, it comes from a very false point of view from them and how they view Jesus as yet another God amongst gods. The cosmology of Mormonism is one of those things like you kind of roll your eyes back. Sometimes you think you do it for the Trinity, get into Mormonism. Like I said, it's a wild ride. But why don't we do go and do the same? Why are we so fearful to send our young men and women from doing the exact same thing? Well, it kind of helps that there's no unity in the church. It helps that Mormons, that's one of the things. they You have to do this. Like you have to go for two years, uh, all these nations, even in the even in the United States as well, to talk to people, go door by door and preach the gospel. Well, their version of it. We don't have that. I wish we did, but it's not here. But what the point of this is, is that by going together, they're safer. It is easier you go to your Ecclesiastes, you know, man, man to man, even better if there are three to protect one another. That's just as simple as it can get. The second point of this is that it increases their dependency on God's sovereignty and control. As this, as this trip, by the standards of man, is incredibly foolhardy because you're not allowed to pack all the supplies and you're even denying yourself some basic needs. Like what this is teaching them is like, look, the only way you're going to make it out of this alive and well is if you depend on me. And there are very few times, especially in our modern American life, where we've ever been in that position. And sometimes that's very bad. We need to be dependent on him. We are not dependent on the wages that I make. We're not dependent on the people that we know, or what have you, or the church that we have. We should be dependent on God himself. Now, the third and final part of this is to help actually fulfill a part of the law that is established in Deuteronomy 19.15, and we'll get to that verse in a moment. It says that we should not, no one should be charged solely on the witness of just one person alone. You need at least two people to do it. That way, they can more accurately condemn these cities who had denied the message that Jesus had sent them with. It's easy for one person to come back and report, say, look, man, they kind of suck over there. And uh, you should call fire down from heaven, Lord. It's like, 
it's a lot more difficult for two people working in righteousness to lie about that same thing and say, yep, yep, those people, they were awful. Like, we should just leave them alone. It's like, no, it's like, hey, we went there, we preached the gospel, and no one received it. We were kicked out of town. It's a lot better to have the witness of two rather than one. Not to say that one person alone can't be a good witness, but it's a really good idea to have more than one. Now, that verse I mentioned is uh, Deuteronomy 19.15. This is from the CSB. One witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Especially in today's age, it is so easy for the words of a single accuser to destroy someone's life. How many false accusations are brought up against celebrities, against coaches, against pastors, against politicians? It says, all they had to say is like, this happened to me. Well, very well, those things could have happened. But if we immediately believe someone simply because they say something, we are fools. This needs evidence. This needs people looking into these claims. Not because we don't want to believe a potential victim, but because we need to make sure this person isn't trying to get some money out of this, just for the sake of it, just by making up claims, just to ruin the reputation of this person. And once again, I'm not saying we never believe the victim. There is plenty plenty of examples. I'm a very big true crime fan of people who have brought accusations against serial killers in the past. And like, look, uh, he he bought me for this time here and uh, he was going to kill me, but I got away. But the police don't believe that woman because she was a prostitute and because it was just one person bringing up against it. That's a lot to unpack about that, but we're going to move on from there. But listen, the reason why Jesus sent them with two is to make sure that when these people didn't listen, there was more weight to their ability to say they didn't listen by bringing two people instead of one. They were also, we will notice, not doing this for free. Ministers, missionaries, and alike like, must be taken care of so that they don't have to worry about doing their jobs. This verse in particular doesn't speak of wages. You can argue and finagle your way I don't see that there. There are other verses in scripture that do, but don't use this one, in my humble opinion. So we won't worry about that here. Instead, we'll concern ourselves with other matters. We do need to concern ourselves with the notion of making sure that our leaders are taken care of, not to make ourselves look better or for the sake of enriching them, but to make their lives as easy as possible. They don't have to worry about matters that would take them away from focusing on enriching the church. This is not, hey, pastor, here's this really cool car that you can use to do whatever. Here is, oh, well, we're just going to pay all your bills for you, you know, just to make myself look better. Like, no, no, this doesn't mean that we exhaust ourselves to our own detriment, whether this be physical, spiritual, or financial, or what have you. But it does mean that we use our resources to aid our spiritual leaders. This also means that any leader receiving these benefits should be doing their jobs and not lazing about thanks to the aid they've received from others. There are plenty of cases, and there should have been none over history, of priests, of pastors, of missionaries who just accepted all the money and donations and spent it on themselves, not once giving a cent back to the church, not once giving a cent back to anyone else, 
because people were taking care of them. They got lazy. They got prideful. And now no one's being served. Never let that happen. We should be aware of what our leaders are doing and then call out that unrighteousness in love. Leaders should also then, if they're being helped, use the time that they have to help others. But I'm not saying you never have a day to yourself. I'm not saying you don't, you can't watch the latest uh, episode of uh, The Mandalorian or what have you, because then that takes time away from serving other people. Like, no, you were allowed to have your own life. Don't waste it. Now, one of the verses used here for a bit of a fun fact is actually believed to be quoted uh, by Paul later in 1 Timothy, where he says the phrase, the laborer deserves his wages, and then he calls it scripture. There is no other verse in scripture where this phrase occurs, possibly meaning, and I'm giving you at least, I think, three examples here of what could be happening with this, possibly meaning that Luke was written before Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Paul wrote that towards the end of his life. This would have been in uh, the 60-ish AD. And lots of people would say like the earliest they'll ever give for Luke is like maybe a little after 70 AD. And I have my own personal conspiracy theory for that, like I mentioned before. We'll wait until we actually get to the temple to talk about that in full. But there is to offer something from the other side. There is some evidence to suggest that Jewish scholars of the day had lengthened the earlier verse Paul quotes about not muzzling oxen. And this comes from 1 Timothy. And added that section to it, the whole thing, the laborer deserves his wages. So uh, actually, even parts of uh, part of Josephus's writing has this. I can't remember exactly where. I, I had looked it up. I forgot to write it down. So that's on me, not you. So it is quoted by someone we know as a huge Jewish scholar back in the day. But it is plainly obvious to me that Paul would never consider such additions by scholars to be scripture, especially with you see, how he uh, talks to, to the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders of the day. Like as someone who could definitely, once he has come to faith, seen what the bull is and then get that out of his life, Paul would never accept that in my opinion. But that's another thing that some scholars will bring up. There is also the view offered that this hypothetical Q document, I think I brought this up in our zero episode as something that could have been like a template for the other gospels. It's kind of like this like hidden fifth gospel. Technically, it would have been the first that the other gospels would have used, like I said, as a template, as something to be like, okay, this was the original, but I'm also going to add these stories from what has been told to me by the witnesses, by the people around Jesus. And we don't know simply because we don't have the Q document. But I want to give all these their due diligence because it's so easy for me to say like, well, Paul quotes from Luke and therefore Luke was written before First Timothy and therefore it is one of the first gospels we have. It is quoted in scripture by scripture and not everyone's going to be satisfied by that. And that's okay. I would like to have that discussion with people. Like I said, I want to show as many sides of an argument as possible so that I'm not just showing what I believe in, which I believe to be the right thing. Otherwise, I wouldn't say that I believe in it. But as we've proven before, just because you believe in something doesn't make it true. Go out, do some research for yourselves, figure this whole thing out as you as you want to. I mean, some of you say, I don't care about any of this, Christian. <laughs> and that's perfectly fine. That is perfectly fine. So that's it for that. We're going to move on to verses 13 through 24. What do you, Corazon, or Corazon, or Corazon, how the heck you want to pronounce it? I've heard it 
I looked this up so many times. And I know I was told by one of my professors here, it's like, never let anyone know that you don't know how something is pronounced. But it's just how it is. I want to be open and honest with you guys. Like, there's some debate. So I'm going to say Corazon for the heck of it. What do you, Bethsaida? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than, than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? Exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you rejects me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Some tremendously great verses here. Let's start with the very beginning. These cities are compared and contrasted by Jesus in a scathing fashion. The first two and Capernaum were Jewish cities, and the other two were Gentile cities. Jesus is decrying the faithlessness of some of his own people who denied him to his face and to the faces of his messengers, his disciples, and rejected his message of repentance. He then contrasts this folly with the far more obviously sinful to his audience, Gentile cities, who he says would gladly repent and become his had he come to them instead. Like earlier, we have him say, like, it'd be better for you, more bearable on that day for Sodom than for you. That is scathing. To those of you who don't know your Old Testament, and that's still, I mean, that's fine. I like that's why I'm here to help have you learn. Sodom and Gomorrah, we always hear that being thrown around, but one of their many sins was how they treated the people among them. One of their many sins was uh, the very evil actions they wanted to do, not only to Lot's daughters, but to his uh, guests there as well. They did not respect guest right. They did not care about the people under that control, which, by the way, back in the day, is one of the greatest offenses you could do because people had to travel around a lot. And if you couldn't trust the people around you, no one ever wanted to go to that city. So if you were untrustworthy, people wouldn't deal with you. They also had the great deal sin of pride of saying that they were the ones who would be able to control and master the world around them, that they could do whatever they wanted. That's what these Jewish cities are doing here in that respect, saying they know more than God. It's completely and utterly ridiculous that they would ever think this, that they would be able to read the scriptures, have them talk to them every week, and yet have not heard a single word, especially 
when Jesus sends his disciples to them. It is very heartbreaking that that could happen. But there are plenty of people, even in our own lives, who go to church and hear the gospel every single time they come. And it falls on deaf ears because they think that they understand or they think that they're good or they don't need to hear anything and that they're righteous based off of, you know, my great, great grandpappy was you know, a preacher back in the day. And therefore, I'm, a, I'm grandfathered in. That's not how it works. We've already discussed that. But what Jesus is bringing here is like, look, you should know better than anyone. Yet, if I went to these Gentile cities, they would fall on their knees and repent. That right there is going to really make people angry. Because why Why should they get it? They, they're, they're Gentiles. We're the only chosen people. And they're completely missing the point. God is using these Jewish men to speak to Jewish men and women to tell them, repent. And only a select few are going to join. Which all of this then begs the question, you know, if Jesus knew that his message would have been better received there, why didn't he go there instead? I mean, surely more people would have come to faith and be in heaven as a result, right? I mean, doesn't that sound like a net positive? I mean, it sounds like one to me off the bat. But why then? Why didn't he go there if he knew he was going to be rejected here? Jesus's point here is very clear. If we look into scripture, Gentiles would have received him more swiftly than his fellow Jews. He's not arguing this, in fact. I mean, the vast majority of Christians today are Gentiles. It's just how that works. Uh, when you have one people group versus an entire world, numbers-wise, chances are the people who are more are going to be more represented. Funny how that happens. But he still came to the Jewish people first because of God's promise to Abraham to bless him and his descendants that we see in Genesis 12, and his promise to David to watch over Israel. This is in 2 Samuel. And from David, there would be a king who would bring Israel deliverance, and that being Jesus, of course. God had marked the Jewish people as his and would always come first to them with his messages throughout Scripture. You look at the prophets the so-called minor prophets and the major prophets. I hate using the word so-called, so I must really be upset. They are preaching the same thing. There are so much we can glean from them. When we get there eventually, we're going to have a lot of fun because I guarantee most of you haven't read some of them. And that's a long time off. But there's a lot there of God continually coming back to his people, his faithless people, and saying, please come back to me. I love you. And we see in Jonah, Gentiles coming to faith, repenting of their sins towards God. We see Naaman in 2 Kings, this Aramean general, the enemy of Israel at that time, being essentially, in a way, baptized and coming to faith in God. And yet the king of Israel and the people under his command refuse, despite getting better miracles then that one time he was healed of his leprosy, which granted is still a pretty major miracle, but the fact God kept giving them victory over victory should tell them God prefers them more. And yet it didn't click. It didn't click. But he also promised, we see this in Isaiah, in Hosea, and several other of the minor and major prophets. He promised that he would also come to the Gentiles with love and the call to redemption when this was first rejected by some members of Israel. That's why God came to the Israelites first, even 
despite knowing he wouldn't receive the positive reception that he rightfully deserved. Because guess what? <laughs> He'd been doing this over and over again all these years. He knew what was going to happen. And yet he came to them anyways because he loved them despite their rebellion, despite our rebellion. God continues to do the same with us. While it may be true, possibly, that more people may have received the call to repent in Gentile cities, then it doesn't matter because it is not what Jesus was called to do. If he had gone there instead, he would have been in active rebellion against God and therefore has sinned and therefore have been unworthy of the cross. That was not the plan. This doesn't mean he didn't care about them, but because of the faithfulness of his faithfulness to the covenants he'd made with Israel's ancestors, he would do what he said to them. Despite the fact that he knew not all would listen. And yet, what do we see later on in Acts? Gentiles coming to faith when they hear the message of love and repentance coming from the mouth of Jewish converts to Christianity. It is a beautiful story. It is a very humbling story. This whole thing, this whole, these whole verses I brought up here, this should also embolden us when we witness. For it is not us that people are truly rejecting if we're evangelizing in truth, but it is God that they reject. Jesus says this all to comfort us. It's like, look, he, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. It's not up to us. And that's good. That is something to be praised. It is up to us to act in faith and go to evangelize the people. But they're not rejecting us if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. They're rejecting him, which is way worse, by the way. He knows how difficult it is to preach and witness to those who will never listen or seem to never listen. That's not our call. That's not our call to make. It's like, they're not going to listen, Lord. If he says, go, we go. How many people have come to faith because someone stepped out when Jesus said, talk to them? And they said, Lord, there's no way they would have been yours. What are you doing? You're wasting your time. That's what it looks like to us. But for all we know, they could come to faith then. Or maybe 10 years, 20 years later, they come to faith because of someone else. And they remember the first person who came up to them and spoke to them the word of Jesus Christ. It is not our call to make. We say, Lord, they will never come to faith. Maybe they won't. But do you see their soul? Do you see anyone else's soul? The only soul I can ever know about is mine. That is the only person I can never know. That person right there, Christian, he is saved. God did a mighty work in him. He is repentant of his sins. And nothing is ever going to take that away from him. That's it. I don't get to make that call and say, that person there, nope, Lord, you're wasting your time. I mean, uh, you can part the Red Sea. You can come back to life. You can save me from my own sins, but not them, Lord. That's not how this works. That is not how this works. And also see how Jesus praises them for what they've done, casting demons out. But he also says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Guys, I would really, some days I feel like, man, if I could just be in an exorcism one time and to cast this demon out, wouldn't I be like the coolest person in the world if that happened? It's like, no, you're in it for the wrong reasons. And even if I was able to do so, and it being the anticlimactic thing we see in scripture, and I say, get out in the name of God, and it leaves, 
It wasn't my power that did that. It's his. But far more impressive to Jesus is in the fact that these people, these faithful men, casted out demons. It's the fact that their names were written in heaven in eternity. That is the point, that we not be lost forever. That our names would be written in the Lamb's book of life we see later on in Scripture. And nothing will ever take that away from us. No matter how many sins I commit since then. No matter how many times I screw up. My name is written and there's nothing that can take that away. Oh boy, here's the next part. Yeah, let's also look at the verse involving snakes and scorpions. There are certain sects within, or that would say, I believe, in that they are Christians, and they continue to do this. You hear about the snake wranglers, you think it's some kind of joke. Unfortunately, especially in Appalachia, there are a lot, and a lot being more than zero, which is what it should be, I love the phrase more than zero. It just makes me happy. More than zero people out there who are wrangling venomous snakes and it's venomous, not poisonous. That's how it works. It's simple biology there. Venomous snakes like rattlesnakes and picking them up and saying, because of my faith, God is going to protect me from the snake, just like he did the Paul in Acts 28, even when the snake bit him, which by the way, they don't mention that part a lot of the times. The snake did bite Paul. Even though it's going to bite me, I'm going to be healed. Even like, It's not even going to bite me at all because I just have faith. That is horrendous. Number one, that you're mishandling God's creation. That snake deserves to be somewhere else. and needs to be fulfilling its role in nature. And it's not to be held by a, a demented uh, so-called Christian. And there I go using the word so-called again. I must really hate these people. <laughs> I need to work on that. Uh, the spies might be better than hate. I lost my track there. I'm on a rabbit trail once again. Okay, look, like we are not commanded to do this. This is specifically for these people at this time. If God chooses to protect us from being bitten or stung by a venomous snake or scorpion, then he has the power to do so. We see in Acts, he does exactly that for Paul. But he would likewise be righteous to allow it to happen because his power is going to work and be glorified either way. Especially if you and I act like fools and test God needlessly. That's exactly what this is. This is a test of faith. Like, Lord, I'm going to jump off this building. Like what just happened and what you didn't do in Luke 4 uh, or whatever it was uh, a while back ago. Uh, that's exactly what I'm going to do is just jump off of this building. And, you know, your angels, they're going to protect me. It's, it's like, did you not? Yeah. Did you not listen to the story? That's not the point. We don't test God in that regard. God never commanded Daniel to throw himself into the lion's den and said, well, these lions aren't going to bite me, Lord. No, but he did command Daniel to be faithful and to continue praying to him and his laws, even when the laws of the land said you should only worship the king, so that when Daniel was thrown into that lion's den, he was prepared. Do not Throw yourself into the lion's den. Be ready for when, and I stress the word when, because we all are at some point in time, when we are thrown into the lion's den, whatever metaphor that ends up being in our lives. Don't be stupid. (laughs) There you go. There's my message for today. Don't be stupid. There are too many people out there, and I think of most recently uh, an individual who I'm fairly certain, I'd have to look this up, 
uh, he went to the Sentinelese in uh, the Indian Ocean, which is uh, there's an island, I believe it's the Sentinel Islands in India, where there's an unca- uncontacted tribe there that is very xenophobic. And he, his intent was to bring the gospel to them. And I'm fairly certain it's from a denomination I'm not that big on. I'd have to relook it up. So apologies if I screw that up. But regardless, his goal was these people need Jesus. That is correct. Absolutely. His follow through was to just introduce himself. And then he got murdered by that tribe. Because guess what? That's exactly what they do to anyone who washes up on their shores. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. That is foolishness. That is throwing yourself into the lion's den. There are ways to do this. There are ways to try and contact these people, to offer gifts, to uh, find ways to potentially communicate in their language. We have the ability to spy on people these days. We can learn. We have plenty of linguists around who are capable of doing so and then figuring out how to write down a language based on that. And I'm so glad there are people out there who can do that because I'm not one of them. But if you really wanted to do this correctly, you would, number one, bring it to God. And then number two, if he says yes, think about this more cleverly to be wise in these decisions. It is not wise to pick up a rattlesnake and say, God is going to protect me. God is going to protect us. That is true. But sometimes he allows us to slip into our own foolishness and get hurt because that's what we need. Please, for the love of God, don't pick up snakes, venomous snakes. Don't pick up scorpions. You deserve better for yourselves. Now, at the end of this, these verses here, we also see a blessing offered by Jesus to the faithful who have received the good news well and listen, even though there were many who came before them who pined for the exact same things they were witnessing. This is one of the most important moments in history. This era right here, this about three-year ministry of Jesus. How many of us have said, man, if I just could have been there? Well, the people in the past were saying the exact same thing. You look at David's prophecies about Jesus. It's so clear, like he wants to be a part of it. But that wasn't what he was supposed to be doing. What was true is that these men were supposed to be doing that. So we should praise them for being faithful. Well, we can be, I hope, spiritually jealous in that regard. Man, I should have been there too. But also grateful that we live in a time far beyond them where we have way more context for what is happening. So we're going to go up to verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Classic Jesus, setting people up for failure. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Good answers, by the way. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place to saw him, passed by him on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, uh, denarii, depending on how you say that, a denarius, by the way, being a day's wage. This is two days worth of wages for this man. And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, 
take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. There's a reason we preach these verses over and over again in church. Not just because they're easy to bring up, but because of how important they are to who we should be as Christians, who we should be as people in general, like the gospel. The Bible is summed up in this story. The entire Bible is summed up in two commands, which the man righteously brings up. Uh, rightfully, it would probably be a better word than righteously. He is correct in saying we need to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the core of Scripture and the wellspring from which everything else you and I need to learn about, how to do all these things to come in the Bible comes from. If we fail either of these commands, we are not following God. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, we see how this unfolds. We are not looked at favorably. Every single moral law and commandment given is based off of these two ideas. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole Bible is telling us how to do those two things. There's your mic drop. Yep. You want another Bible? There you go. We're done. But not really. Obviously, a huge part of the story is intended to shock and humble the original audience in the fact that a hated and despised Samaritan acts and is holier than the people they expected to be holier. But the racial background of the Good Samaritan can easily be changed to another, and the story remains the same, or even could be changed to political affiliations, nationalities, or what have you. There was probably someone or some group who came to mind when we thought of who could possibly take the role of the Good Samaritan today. Probably, guy, right, guys? Well, why did they come to mind for you? Why did they come to mind for me? Is there something that needs to be done within our hearts to fix our perception of these people? I ask us all, just take some time to think about this and realize just how timeless this message in is. You can replace the Samaritan with your noun of choice. All across time and space, there have been plenty of people who this could have been changed with. You go to your European societies, this could have been replaced with Jewish people because they look so poorly at them. You go all over the world to the Americas? No, no. What about the Native Americans? Well, the the settlers were doing all this, but they ignored this help, ignored this person crying out in pain, and a Cherokee came by and saved the man. You see what I mean of how this could be replaced with anything? And I don't know if that's Jesus's intent. I'd rather not say that it is. But to me, when I'm reading this, it is so obvious that this could be replaced with anyone and if that is wrong, I will repent of that. But look at what he's saying. This man goes above and beyond the call to protect someone who hates him. Someone who despises him for existing. I think we've talked a little bit about the Samaritans before. But for those who need a recap, essentially what happened is Israel and Judah split up into two nations after Rehoboam became king, after Solomon had died. And he inflicted a bunch of taxes on the people. So the 10 northern tribes rebelled. And then you have Judah and Benjamin and little bits of Simeon inside of Judah. Israel was then attacked by the Assyrians in the year 722 BC. 
where they were taken captive, their lands laid waste, and all the people were most of the people were removed to other lands in the Fertile Crescent. Some did remain in the land, so when what the Assyrians would do, which was rather clever of them, is they would take people who said, this land is our land. Well, if they moved them elsewhere, well, now they have to say this land is our land, but they don't have the attachment they do to this land that they do to where they were previously. So they would then send settlers there to that land to occupy it, making it their land instead, which helps stop rebellions. And what these people did, these settlers, to the few Jewish people who remained in that area, they intermarried. And from their unions, we get the Samaritans, who were seen by the Jewish people as mongrels, as less than. I mean, surely you can't think of any time in history recently where this has occurred. It's a timeless message for a reason. There are so many people in our church who would identify as Christian and then say there is no such thing as interracial marriage. There is no such thing as uh, a church that should accept people who are not singularly one race. And it makes no sense. The Jewish people were doing exactly this. Their goal, why God made them into a nation, was to bring blessings to them and to bring blessings to the other nations. That kind of implies God wants to like the other nations too, you would think. And when Jesus ascends into heaven, uh, it gives out the Great Commission. He doesn't say, leave it to uh, Jerusalem and Judea. He adds on Samaria and then even further gasp. He brings the ends of the earth, which tells me that's everyone. So there is not a person alive here who we can reject and say, nope, uh, God doesn't love them. And yet time after time, Christians have done exactly that, even to this modern age. And it really gets under my skin because it makes no sense when you look at the world in light of the gospel, which is what Jesus is trying to get here. That's his point. His neighbor, this man's neighbor, was the man who looked after him when no one else did. No one else did. We look at the priest. This would obviously be someone we expect to do the right thing. I mean, of course, they're the ones who are supposed to instruct the people in the law. The fact that he doesn't is not only a slam against Pharisees and Sadducees, but a slam against the idea of they haven't been doing what they're supposed to be doing. So why would they follow the rules they're not even telling people to do? And especially so, this man, from some of the context we read in Scripture, was probably more than likely a descendant of Aaron, the first, by the way, uh, priest of Israel. So that line from the first all the way down to them should have meant that they knew what they were doing and would have followed it. And yet we see they don't in this story. The Levite, who is likewise a part of that same tribe as comes from the sons of Aaron, were acting as helpers to the priests so that they would know the law as well and could help instruct the people. Because the priests can only do so much, they need help. In the same way, we have we have small leaders, we have deacons, we have people whose job it is uh, to watch out for others. Imagine that. But they're not doing their job. But it is the Samaritan, the one with a syncretic version of Judaism. That is uh, what the Samaritans did is they took these pagan beliefs and modified them with Judaism. That is uh, syncretism, the idea of molding something into something that used to be. And obviously, that's not going to lead to a saving faith because it's adding on to something that doesn't need to be added on to. But yet he is the one who goes above and beyond the call for this man who hates him. 
at great personal cost to himself, two days wages. That man worked two days for someone he never met before. And then he promised offer more if that was needed. He doesn't know this man. Yet he has compassion on him and offers the best care available at the time. You and I, we are likewise called to do the same. There are plenty of opportunities to serve in many ministries around us. Find one and devote yourself to it. Not everything needs to be handled by throwing money at it. There's nothing wrong inherently with throwing money at something because these causes, they're going to need money. Money can be used to help enable good ministries to get work done. But if we personally don't get involved physically, have we really devoted ourselves to what we say is right? I mean, it doesn't have to be going to a soup kitchen. It doesn't have to be anything crazy else like going even to a prison ministry. I'm glad that there are people who do that. But we should be serving somewhere. Children's ministry. Greeters. <laughs> he says, knowing the anti-greeter bias this podcasting network has. It could be, I'm the person who writes, you know, everything on the outline so that everyone else, when they have their bulletin, they can read it. That is service. That The AV guys and gals, that is service. Find a way to help things get done so that we are working towards that common goal of worshiping Jesus and bringing others to him. Find out where you fit. Learn from that Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Every single living person on this planet is our neighbor. The people who despise us, the people who talk behind our backs, the people who would never give us the time of day. That person ends up in the same scenario as this man. You and I are called to look after them. And there are no excuses for not. And I say that to myself just as much as I'm saying it to you. So we'll continue today in verses 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her, ha- into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, if you look into John, you're going to get more into Mary and Martha and Lazarus as well. And their relationship with Jesus, that seems to be like he has a very loving friendship between the three of them and him. But right here, we get the story everyone knows about the two of them. And there's been a lot of hearsay, a lot of stuff that doesn't involve the actual message. I hope that I'm saying what I'm saying in truth. A disciple's proper place in life is learning from their instructor. We are called to be disciples. We are called to be discipled. There are times when we get lost in the woes of life and we just concern ourselves with what doesn't matter as much as learning about who God is and what he desires from us. All of us need to be discipled. All of us need to be disciples. Mary was being a disciple right now. She was being a student, someone who was learning from her teacher. She was right to stay and listen to what Jesus had to say and to temporarily, hear that word, temporarily ignore the duties of being a great servant in the home. I love people who are really great at hospitality. I am awful at it. I have 
never once had that as a spiritual gift, and I probably never will. Don't say no. It is amazing to me that there are people who can organize things in such a fashion that the food is ready on time, that all the plates are assembled correctly, that no one got killed in the midst of anything. No children were murdered for asking the wrong question while the guests were waiting for the food. It amazes me that people can do that. But if that's all we're focusing on is a presentation, we've lost our way. It's perfectly fine if something goes wrong and we're forced to eat something that we weren't supposed to in the first place. It is perfectly fine if something shatters and the food that was in is gone and now we have to order takeout. It's okay. It is not okay to only worry about that, which is what Martha is doing right now. Martha is right. And that something did need to be done. They, they're going to need to eat at some point in time. We've, or They're human. We're going to need to eat. Even Jesus needed to eat. But that's not what she needed to hear and do at that moment. She needed to be with Mary, learning at the feet of Jesus about who he is and what needed to be done. Her heart was right and that something needed to be done, but her timing was off. It was far more important to listen to Jesus while he was still there because he wouldn't be there forever than for the food to be ready or for the house to be cleaned or any other things we worry about when we have guests over. It's fine to get those things done. Don't deny the people we're trying to reach out to. The homes that we open up so that we can reach our neighbors and love on them and tell them about who Jesus is to have a place where we can assemble for Bible study and everyone gets to eat a lovely meal after. Like, it's great to have those things. It's not a requirement. The requirement is that we are faithful to being disciples and to disciple. So use wisdom and discernment to know when to focus on one and not the other. And with that, we are done with Luke chapter 10. Thank you again for listening. Please, if you have the moment uh, to go ahead and just leave a five-star review to help uh, spread awareness of the podcast. I'd be more than appreciative of that. If you ever actually write something out and I see it, I'd be more than happy to read it out in the show. If you're interested in my fiction writing, go look me up at uh, www.starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching the name MC Ashley. If you're interested in attending the Every Tribe, Denomination, and Tongue Convention that is going to be happening May 11th through the 13th, I'm so excited. I'm ready to go. Uh, got everything planned. Be spending some good time with the guys and just having a hopefully a very fun, enriching time of worship and loving on one another. If you would like to go, I have been given a free promo code for you all to use. That code is UNMOVED, all caps, UNMOVED, which will give you $20 off your tickets. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then go ahead and check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. If you'd like to contact me here specifically, go ahead and reach out at letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. Be more than happy to listen to you guys and read what you have to say and to respond with you about what's going on in your lives. If anything I'd be praying for, please let me know that as well. I need to improve my prayer life considerably because I'm really bad at it. But with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.